Amen, amen. Those who are those children who are going to go to children's church may be dismissed for that at this time. We welcome you to to do that. Um, and um, the rest of us, I'll invite you to turn with me in the Bible, if you have one, to Psalm one. Um, and if you're uh, if you're new to the Bible, that's almost right in the middle. You can almost just let your Bible fall open, and it'll be there near Psalm one. If you're using the Pew Bibles, it's on page 448. Um, Psalm 1 is our text for today. I have a friend named Margie who um, recounted an interaction that she observed while sitting in a seminary class uh, called, the class was called The Gospel of Mark and Discipleship. And it was a team taught class by two actually of my former professors, Donald Guthrie and Hans Beyer. Um, These are these are two of, of my favorite professors from seminary, in fact. Uh, I, I love uh, to sit under either of them. Hans Beyer has this unique way because uh, as a, he's a, a native German, but his English is so good that you can barely detect an accent sometimes, but he still misses the idioms. And so he's, he's inclined to tell you that, um, that he doesn't want to let the cat leave the sack. Or... <laughs> Or if, if he's afraid of getting ahead of himself, then he, he, he confesses that he may have jumped over the rifle. Um, or uh, or that, that he knows that the problem is glass clear, right? Um, so, so any class with buyer is fun just because you're spotting for these things, but he's also this man of rich discipleship. So too, Donald Guthrie. And to begin this class, Margie recounts that Donald Guthrie began by asking the students what they were expecting. What would you expect from a class called the Gospel of Mark and Discipleship? And, you know, some of the answers were what a lot of us might offer, how to be a good disciple, uh, to learn the character and life of of a follower of Christ, to apply the gospel to life. Uh, But one of the students, and of course it was one of the Master of Divinity students, right, um, said that he wanted to study the Gospel of Mark more academically, and expressed some disappointment that, uh, that this sounded like the class might be more about personal discipleship and that he would have to readjust his expectations at that. At which point, Dr. Guthrie held out his hands and says, is it possible to study anything just academically out here with just the mind? Is that even possible for a Christian? And I think for so many of us, and maybe particularly for some of us who are comfortably Presbyterians, then the answer, unfortunately, is yes, it is possible to study something just out here, academically, at a distance, even something that we call God's Word. The psalmist shows us something more than that. So let's look together to Psalm 1 at what God would teach us through the psalmist's words. But first, if you will, join me in prayer that he would open our eyes for the reading and teaching of his Word. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you as we open your word before us. Lord, let us be as Samuel was who said, Speak, Lord, for your servant listens. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 1. This is God's word. Blessed is the man 
who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff, but like chaff uh, that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is God's word, and it's absolutely true, and it's given to us in his love. You know, we coming into a new year, we, we might begin to take take stock of things, right? The, many of us do that. We use the turning of the calendar from December into January for a time to reflect on uh, what will be different this year? Some of us perhaps hoping for, uh, uh, for job changes or for um, personal life circumstance changes, for, for redirections of family things. Some of us perhaps are looking for uh, changes of things spiritually. And we might have begun to wonder, well, what will I do devotionally this year? Is there something in the Bible for me? I, I hear these questions. I know you do, too, from my fellow believers, all of us together in this life, we, we ask one another, is there, is there something for us there? We don't ask in those words exactly. Often I think we're too afraid to be quite that vulnerable with the question, but, but that's our question. Does God have something for us in his word? I, I, um, I have an acquaintance, uh, he actually was a classmate of Marcy's who's, who works for Reformed Seminary now, and he writes a blog with questions, common questions like 10 misconceptions about the New Testament canon and Bible secrets revealed, a response to the new History Channel series. He's, he's hitting on something that we all have. We all have a, a, a longing to know, is there truth here in this Bible? What does that truth mean for us? And how does it shape us? How does it change us? What does it say to me about who I am? One of my favorite books on studying the Bible is called, Is There a Meaning in This Text? Isn't that a great question? Is there a meaning in this text? Many of us wonder the same. Someone in my church that I pastored in Tennessee said to me once, I know the Bible is full of wisdom and historic truth, but is there really anything meaningful there for me? We all struggle with that, don't we? We all want to know whether God's Word will help us. Will it hinder us? Will it propel us forward into something amazing? Will it take us down a dark and tragic path? Will it challenge us? And the answer, of course, is that it will do all of these things in its own way. We all need the rest and renewal that is offered through the Word of God. We all need the challenges that are offered through the Word of God. We all wrestle with believing it. Well, what the psalmist says for us today is that those who delight in God's Word are blessed. 
They are renewed. That's our big idea for today as Steve presents it, likes to present it to you. I'll present it to you that way too. That's the big idea that those who delight in God's word are blessed and renewed. And there's just two simple points that, um, that we can find in the psalm that show us that. First is the way of the wicked, and then second, naturally, is the way of uh, the, the righteous. It bears mentioning here, before we get going any further, that, uh, and some of you know this already, that when the Old Testament especially, and especially within the Old Testament, the wisdom literature, refer to the wicked and the righteous, we need to be careful that we don't think of those merely in moral categories. Because in fact, all of us then would fall into that category of the wicked if it was simply a moral category, right? What the psalmist refers to when he speaks of the righteous or the wicked, these are, these are more um, almost ecclesiastical categories. The righteous is the covenant keeper, the one who longs for God, the one who submits himself to God and his promises. And the wicked is the covenant breaker, the lawless one who has no interest in God's things. So when they use these categories, righteous and wicked, when I use them today, think of them in that light. We're speaking not of uh, simply did I do the right things and not do the wrong things. It's am I seeking after the right hope, the right God, or is my God too small for what I am asking of it? That, those are the categories that they mean. So let's look together at the way of the wicked, which we'll find in verses 1 and then 4 and 5. What is the way of the wicked? Well, the first thing that we might notice in verse 1 is that they are a restless way. That is, a, that is not a peaceful way. Did you notice that? They, they walk in wicked counsel. They're standing in the way of sin. They're sitting in the seat, seat of scoffers. This is somebody who, who's pretty shiftless. They can't seem to find their place, right? They're standing up and sitting down, and they're walking around, and, and they, they're not at peace. They're not at rest. We tend to think only of wickedness as a one-time thing. But the psalmist is showing us that it's a way. We tend to think that sometimes we, we break our covenant with God, and, and that's just one occasion that happens. But the psalmist is showing us that is that's actually more revealing of our hearts. There's more going on there. What the psalmist is pointing out to us here is that wickedness includes everything that falls short of the glory and image of God. Romans 3.23 says, for, God, for, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that means me. And that means you. All have sinned. Not all Romans have sinned. Not all people of the first century A.D. have sinned. All have sinned. You know, that's helpful. As convicting and condemning as it is, it's helpful because it reminds us and gives us clarity for just how much we need the renewal that's offered by God. Now, why is this way so cursed? Why is it so condemned? Because we, we all know people that walk in that way every day and they seem to be doing fine. They don't seem cursed. Many of our co-workers, maybe our neighbors, maybe some of our oldest friends, maybe some of our family members, maybe some of us in this room, we know 
that we are on the way of the wicked. And everything seems okay. Or we see them and they seem to be prospering. They seem to be blessed. And we face challenges. What does it mean when the psalmist says, cursed is the wicked way? What it it means is that that way, that hope that they have, the, the things in which they are prospering are not lasting things. Yes, they may prosper financially. They, maybe they have a wonderfully well-paying job and you're struggling to make, to make this month's rent and you, you wrestle. Why are they so blessed? Or maybe they, they seem to have all the popularity and all the friendships and, and everybody likes to be with them and you struggle socially. Why are you at such a disadvantage? Well, those are fleeting things, the psalmist says. They, they do not last. Even the relationships, even the longest things that we think of in this, in this temporal life, they, they're fleeting. They are like chaff that blows away. And that's a vivid picture, especially for uh, the agrarian culture that the psalmist, David the psalmist would have been writing in. Him, he himself a shepherd. He would have known well what it meant for them to gather wheat and put it in a winnowing basket and that basket would be spun and, the, and these particles separated the wheat and the tares, the wheat and the chaff and, the, and, they, and they would throw it up in the air and the, the heaviness of the wheat grain would bring it back down into the basket while the chaff, light and wispy and useless and weightless, would blow away. And that's what he's saying. These things that we look on our neighbors or our co-workers or our friends, our family, where they seem to be prospering so, even in their wickedness, those are fleeting. They are weightless. They have no no gravity to them. William Van Gimmeren commented uh, on this saying, the metaphor of chaff reveals both the uselessness of the wicked and the ease with which God will deal with them. Even as the winnower casts the chaff to the afternoon breeze, so the Lord will drive away the wicked. No one will remember their place. That restlessness, that inability to find a place to settle down. I'm sitting here, I'm standing there, I'm walking around. That lack of place. It's, it's meaningless. And these will not stand in judgment. Wickedness defined this way, falling short of the glory of God, shows how near to judgment we all are, and yet ultimately it also shows us our need. We are restless because we know this inherently. We lack peace in our lives, in our relationships, in our work, in all that we do, if we lack those things because we instinctively know the depth of our own wickedness. Do you lack peace? Do you feel restless? Is your soul at rest? Graciously, the psalmist doesn't leave us there. Instead, he contrasts that way of the wicked, that hopeless and restless way with the way of the righteous. 
What is the way of the righteous? It's one who delights in the law of the Lord day and night. Now God's law, as we attested to earlier, revives the soul. And it is the great reward that we find. This is our reward if we're believers. Rather than being unsettled, like the one who follows the way of the wicked, walking, standing, sitting, the one who follows the way of the righteous is planted and rooted and stable. He is found rooted in the law of the Lord. This is why St. Augustine said, O Lord, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in You. We were not meant to be restless that way. But there is nothing that can give us rest apart from the Lord. And so we will remain restless. Even if we prosper in the briefly fleeting things of this world, we will still remain restless because those are gods that cannot answer. Only the Lord can give us the rest that we seek. Now why is that way so blessed? Why, as in, in what way is it so blessed? Well, because, verse 3 tells us, because he bears his fruit in season. Just as a tree that is well-rooted in fertile soil bears fruit, so too those who are rooted in the Word of God will see the fruit of righteousness in their lives. His leaf does not wither, verse 3 says. It's a lasting and enduring kind of a thing. The Lord watches over him, verse 6 says. The ultimate blessing of renewal offered to the one rooted in God's word is that God himself extends his watch care over this soul. Why? Because that soul knows their wickedness. They know the fleeting pleasures of the world are not going to answer. They know uh, that they themselves are dependent. More so even than just in a, an airport customer service line. More than just when we feel sick from the flu or from some other thing, and in that moment then we recognize our helplessness. But then days later we feel better. Eventually those people in the airport do get home. Gosh, I sure hope they do. Don't you? Don't you hope they're not still wandering around in that airport today? Those things end. That kind of dependence, it's a good illustration, but it, it doesn't really get to the heart of it because we have a deeper dependence, a, a longer need than that, don't we? It's not just something that happens every now and then. It's something that is always our need until it is filled. That soul that knows that need, that is willing to openly say, I am needy. I need Christ. I don't just want Christ. I need Him. That soul knows the depth of God's care for them as well in Christ. We all know that challenging verse of Romans 3.23. I read it a minute ago. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the next verse is the rest of the story, so to speak. Fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption 
that came by Christ Jesus. Graham Goldsworthy commented this. He said, few would argue with the statement that we are converted by believing the gospel, but how does the gospel figure into Christian growth or sanctification? Examination of the New Testament documents show shows that growth is not stepping out from the gospel, but rather stepping out with the gospel. Many of the problems dealt with in the epistles arise from a failure to apply the gospel to some aspect of life. The solution to this problem is to restore the gospel to its rightful place at the center of our thinking and doing. What the psalmist is showing us is that the truth, the central core of this book, the word of the Lord, or as the the psalmist would put it, the law of the Lord, the word of the Lord is driving us always back to the gospel, back to the renewal and redemption that Christ is offering us. And by driving us back there, taking us to the thing that will answer every need. It's not that we encounter the gospel so that then we can move on with that clean slate, right? It's that the gospel is what we wear to keep us clean as we go forward. It may not be that we hear, or it may be that we hear and read this, and we conclude that there's just not a lot of hope for us there. We, we see the lack of rootedness in our lives, and we wonder how long it will be before we too perish like the chaff. J.C. Ryle said this to challenge that that hopelessness. He said, I might sometimes imagine I was too bad to be forgiven. My own heart sometimes whispers that I am too wicked to be saved. But I know in my better moments, this is all my foolish unbelief. I read an answer to my doubts in the bloodshed on Calvary. I feel sure that there is a way to heaven for, a, for the very vilest of men when I look at the cross. Others of us will find a lot of comfort here. We find Christ. We know He is the object of our faith. And we're affirmed. Be affirmed, believers. Christ is your hope. And He is meeting your needs. And He is giving you a way of righteousness. He is the source of blessing and renewal for you. Be affirmed. Some of us might be in between those. We might not even know it. I, I came under great conviction of exactly that when I read from um, Presbyterian missionary Leslie Newbegin's book, Foolishness to the Greeks. He said this. He said, the scholar, Bible scholar, meaning the so- scholar examines the text, but is not in any profound sense examined by it. If he is a believer, he will draw from the text illumination for his own faith, but his faith does not rest on the authority of the text. It is rather that he perceives a congruence between the faith to which the text bears witness and his own. Is that where some of us are? I wrestle to stay out of that category. Maybe you do too. Where I don't really have a Bible faith. I have a faith that has a lot of overlap with the Bible. But when it's inconvenient for me what the Bible says, 
I pursue my own faith. You know that feeling? When the Bible says something really convicting, really challenging, it exposes you. It, can, it challenges you. It, it rebukes you. What then? Do you continue to pursue the faith of the Bible? Because as the psalmist said, that is the way. That is the only way of the righteous. And to pursue anything else is fleeting like chaff. Well, thinking back to that class, my friend said, I don't know, shortly after the exchange I recounted earlier, then the other instructor, Hans Beyer, began to address the class, and he said to them that discipleship is his personal adventure. He confessed this to them. He said he is a recovering theoretician. He said, God is digging through the tunnel of my life from both ends. The intellectual theoretician to the disciple to meet in the middle from intensive exegetical analysis to the discipleship, causing me to focus on the phenomenal, phenomenal phenomenon of Jesus, who is in the process of transforming hearts of my heart. And he went on to say, we want to learn that God messes with our carefully constructed, exegetical, methodological selves to take us to a much deeper level than where we would habitually hover. And finally, he warned them. He said, let me be glass clear. <laughs> it will be uncomfortable, more radical, and even more surprising than you can imagine. The experience of discipleship can be exhilarating. It can be threatening. And it will also be exhausting. Discipleship is the process of submitting ourselves to someone who has an agenda for us. It will be our undoing. The undoing of self, just as the book of Mark is about the undoing of Peter. It will disarm us, challenge us. Jesus is not interested in our opinions about this. He is pursuing a new transformation of ourselves into a redemptive community. That sounds pretty amazing. And it also sounds a little bit threatening, a little bit intimidating. But that's the picture of discipleship that the psalmist invites us to. To take root into God's Word. It will be hard. It will challenge and chasten us. It will at times provoke and prove difficult. But it will also bless and keep us. And it will give us rest. And it will give us peace. Will you join me and let's resolve to seek that peace together in the Word of the Lord? Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we want that, and yet we don't want it. And so we pray, uh, like the, the, the father of the demon-possessed son, we believe, help us in our unbelief. Lord, we love Your Word. Help us to love Your Word. We want to be shaped by Your Word. Help us to be willing to be shaped. Transform us, Lord, and make us into the people and the community that you would have us to be. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.